The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We're continuing in our Ephesians series. Uh, and the series is called Fearless. And as Kylan preached last week, we've been given so much from God in the gospel. We've been given so much in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are called to protect that which we have been given from God. Why must we protect what we've been given from God? Well, because there is, of course, an enemy. And that enemy wants us to not believe in God, and especially not believe that God loves us despite our sin. And that enemy, as Kyle said last week, wants to cool our relationship with God, even if it takes him a very long time to do so. And so... God has given us the means of protection in the gospel. And these means require us to be strong. But not with a strength of our own that we have to muster up ourselves. We are called to be strengthened by the vast strength of the Lord. That's what verse 10 means. It's a command to be strong, but it's a command in the passive tense, which means it's a command to be strengthened. If I can put it this way. Uh, last night, I had to say to my youngest son, Banjo, go to bed. He's like, stop worrying about this. Stop fussing. You just need to go to sleep. He had a little owie on his side, which he got this past week from falling over off his, off his uh, scooter. And he had been up for a long time. He was quite tired. And he, had, he wanted a Band-Aid on that. And he was just, he was wigging out. Every, the world was ending because he needed a Band-Aid for his owie. And I said, you just need to go to bed. You don't need an owie. You don't need a Band-Aid. You just need to go to bed. And so as a father, my command to him is go to bed. And as a parent, what I'm also saying is go to bed because you need bed. You need what only bed can give you. So I've provided for you a nice, comfy, warm bed and a roof over your head. I've given you everything you need to get what you need right now, which is sleep. Now go to bed. So it's a command and it's an invitation. And so that command from, from when, when Paul talks about this, To be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, is a command to be strong, but not a command to to, to make ourselves strong, not a command that we've got to try and be stronger and report back to God and those things, but a command to actually be strengthened by God. That's what the armour of God is all about. That's what this whole series is all about, being strengthened with with, with that which God has given us, those things which God has given us in the gospel. So what is that strength? What is this vast strength of the Lord? That This vast strength of the Lord is quite simply God's power to raise Christ from the dead. That's, his, that's how powerful God is. He raised Christ from the dead and he seated, uh, he seated Christ at his right hand. And Paul says he also raised us as well. That for those of us who are believers, those of us who are Christians, we know that uh, there's going to come a day where we will pass away from this life and yet we'll be risen, we will rise again. We will be risen in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have new bodies and we'll get to see Jesus face to face. That's what this is all about. And God does that for us because he loves us. That, that's his reason. Like if you were to go to God and say, hey God, why did you raise these people from the dead? It's for his glory and it's, for, it's because he loves us. That's why God did this. So today we're going to be tackling the first piece of armour, which is the belt of truth. So can I just pray? And then we will get into God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I ask uh, 
for myself, Lord, as I'm, as I'm speaking now, any weakness I, that I have right now, Lord, all the weakness that I have, would you be strong here, Lord, for us? Where there, where there are deficiencies in us to hear your word this morning, would you be strong for us, Lord? Would you strengthen us, Lord, in the strength of your might? Would you point us towards how beautiful Jesus is, Lord? Holy Spirit, we know you're with us. Would you just make us especially aware of that this morning? Would you help us to see how much better Jesus is than everything else this world could ever offer us? So Lord, teach us, encourage us, rebuke us, exhort us, and comfort us this morning through your word. Amen. Have you ever had that feeling like you're just not good enough? Like, if everybody here in this room was to find out exactly who you are, they would reject you straight away. A number of years ago, I heard of a study uh, about, which, which aimed to assess feelings of guilt. And I, in the past couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this, I've tried to find where I actually, what the original source of this study, and I can't find it anywhere. Which makes me think maybe this study didn't actually happen, maybe I just dreamt this or something one time. And when you hear the, the questionable ethics of the study, you might agree with me that I kind of hope this study actually never happened. Because it's a little bit weird, it's a bit dodgy. It, it goes something like this. <clears throat> a group of researchers sent a text message to a random group of people in a small town. That text message said, they know what you've done, leave town immediately. Can you see why we don't want that to be true? Like, can you imagine getting that text from an unknown number? And apparently by the end of the day, eight out of the 10 people who received that text had left town. Now again, I've got nothing to back that story up. I'm just saying that. I'm pretty sure I heard it from a friend of a friend of mine or something like that. But imagine if you got that text message. Imagine if that came to your phone from an unknown number. Where would your mind go? Where would your heart go? Where would your soul go? What, what parts of your, of your history, what parts of your life would you suddenly revisit and start sifting through like a filing cabinet being like, oh my goodness, could it be this? Could it be this? It could be any number of these things. Who do I need to unfriend on Facebook all of a sudden? Like, what do I need to do right now? And that's interesting. It's, it's an intriguing thought because it speaks to this issue of not feeling like we're good enough. What if the world found out who I really was deep down? What if they were privy to the deepest and darkest parts of my life? I would be rejected, right? This is one of our greatest fears, that if people knew who we really were, they would utterly reject us. And I don't think any of us here in this room need much convincing of this. All of social media, even all of public appearance, is an exercise in trying to hide the perfections of our lives and hoping that the world will accept the self-image that we promote. And for so many of us, we feel trapped and forced to present a a version of ourselves to the world that is slightly better than who we really are, or maybe a lot better than who we really are. And this area is what the biblical word righteousness speaks into. Righteousness means a right standing before God. To be righteous means that you can stand in front of the piercing eyes of God who sees everything and still be called right. And what the Bible teaches us is that our sin makes us 
unrighteous. And that feeling of being unrighteous is underneath every insecurity that we feel and underneath every, every feeling that we're not good enough, that we don't measure up, and no, no one could ever, ever love us. If we were truly found out, if they really knew who we really were, they would never love us, we would be rejected. Now, in the world of modern psychology, this is addressed often as an issue of self-esteem and self-image and is often remedied with, with accepting oneself. And while that begins to address the issue, it doesn't go deep enough. Underneath our feelings of insecurity and our need to prove, to us, prove ourselves to the rest of the world lies this issue of unrighteousness, this feeling that there's something wrong with us that we're not actually right. And believe it or not, this has everything to do with the belt of truth and the armour of God. The idea of putting on the belt of truth means to be wearing the truths of God's word and his gospel in such a way that it holds everything else together. It's not just enough to know God's truth. We need to wear it. We need to put it on like a belt. And my hope is that you'll see through our study today that God's truth, wearing God's truth, is a matter of applying the truths of the gospel deep in our hearts. It means to not only subscribe to the truth of God's word, in theory, but to make God's truth adhesive in our hearts, to really make God's truth stick inside of our hearts. Now, when Paul speaks of the belt of truth, he's referring to the truth that is revealed to us in God's word. And understanding this is the first part of fastening ourselves with the belt of truth. Paul is referring here to the ultimate, universal, infallible and eternal truth of God's word that has existed for centuries. And though claim after claim has come against God's word, though generation after generation has sought to drown it out, God's word remains. Other ideologies and philosophies and worldviews and regimes have crashed against God's word, kind of like waves crashing against a rocky cliff. And like waves, they make a big splash, a big noise, a hell of a scene. And then like waves, they retreat, having not made a single dent at all. God's word remains. Friends, our Bibles, our Bibles are more than just words on paper. Our Bibles contain the self-revelation of God Almighty. And since he is a source of truth, his word is infallible truth. Now, someone might say, well, come on now. How can you believe in, sorry, how can you make a claim to knowing universal truth? There's no such thing. No one can say that their truth is universal. That would make it true for everybody. And we know that that's just not true. Each person must find their own truth. And if it's true for them, they must live out their own truth. This is largely the attitude of our culture where every single person gets to determine what is true for them and then it is their right, it is their permi they have permission to, and they're encouraged to live out their truth. Maybe you've, maybe you've seen this someone on someone's T-shirt or... Uh, talk show saying something along these lines live out your truth now if that's what you believe I've got to say you've got a couple of problems on your hands the first problem is that to make a claim that there's no such thing as absolute truth is in, in and of itself a claim of absolute truth you must use a universal truth claim to claim that there is no such thing as universal truth the second problem that you have on your hands is that you and I are fickle. We change like the tide. And as we change, what is true to us, what is true for us, will inevitably change with us. 
And if we try to live on our, live our truth, if we try to build our life on a, on, a, on a truth that changes as quickly as we do, we'll be crushed, we'll be exhausted, and we'll be left wrung out. This is why the claims of Jesus stand in such stark contrast to the claims of this world. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, there's no such thing as your truth. I am the truth, says Jesus. Life is only possible through me. That would make a big splash in in our world today, right? That would get Jesus cancelled these days. You see, if if you're seeking to live live out your truth, I can commend you at least for this, for wanting to seek out some kind of truth. And here's the thing. If you like truth... You'll love Jesus. If you want to live out your truth, can I just encourage you to increase your appetite? Increase your appetite. I understand that actually what's, at hand, what's, on, what's available for you is universal truth, truth that has been true for generation after generation. And if you know him, if you know his truth, that truth will set us free. And the truth of Jesus is found only in his scriptures. The Bible, which is God's primary method of revealing himself to the world, is the place where we find truth. And so the first part of putting on the belt of truth must be to be filling our hearts and filling our minds with God's word. As Paul says in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the purpose of this women's event this afternoon. To, to allow the word of Christ to dwell in our hearts richly. To fasten on the belt of truth, first of all, means to know this truth. And we can only know this truth if we begin in God's word, if we're actually in God's word. And I want to ask, how would you score yourself on that? If you were to give yourself a score out of 1 to 10, 10 being amazing, 1 being terrible, where, how would you score yourself on having satisfactory, satisfying times in God's word? And I'm not just talking about... You get you know, the verse of the day in your inbox and you read it and it takes about 25 seconds. I mean like 30 minutes in God's Word, studying God's Word, opening it, reading it. How would you score yourself at doing that? Where, where do you sit with that? And I ask this not because I want to make you squirm or make you feel condemned. I ask this because the more I talk with Christians, who as Danielle was talking about before, have been Christians for a very, very long time, the more I find people who have no relationship with God's word. They, don't, they, they really struggle with this. And more than that, they're embarrassed by it. They, they don't want to put up their hand and ask for help. They're embarrassed. They, oh, I should be better at this by now. And I look forward to a day that one day I'm going to be better at this, but right now I'm not doing very well at this. And I, I say this because I don't want you to go through life any longer with that being the case. I don't say this because I, want, because I want you to make you feel guilty or condemned. I say this because I'm asking you to ask for help with this. Say to somebody, I'm, I'm struggling, I need help with this. God's word is a blessing to us. God's word is wonderful. It's deep and it's rich. God's word can be trusted. God's word can be understood. Have you ever opened a Deuteronomy and just been like, what the heck is going on here? With some tools, with some help, you can know what that means. It's not in another language. You can know what, what that means. If, if you're here and you're a woman and you weren't sure if you're going to go this afternoon or not, go. 
Maybe there was a registration process and that's just totally thrown out. Just, just turn up. I'm sure Angie will be fine with our good registrations. That'll be totally fine. Just blame it on Kylan. That's totally fine. If reading the Bible and having substantial and satisfying times in God's Word is something that you struggle with, we as a church want to help. We want to help. There is absolutely nothing to be gained by remaining silent about this, and there is so much to be gained by sticking up your hand and asking for help. So this is me saying it as clearly as I can. We're going to have some prayer time after the sermon this morning. And if that's you, if you're in that boat, that you're like, yeah, I maybe open up my Bible once a month, and as soon as I open it, I feel deflated. If that's you, come and get prayer. You might be embarrassed by that. Swallow that pride. There is so much more at stake than your pride right now. Swallow that pride. Come and get some prayer. And then talk to your life group leader. Talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to one of the leaders. Say, I need some help. I'm not doing very well in God's word. So the first part of putting on the belt of truth is to know the truth of God's word. But if all we have, though, is just a knowledge of biblical doctrines, we've only gone halfway. To really put on the belt of truth, we need to make God's truth stick in our hearts. You see, we can have all the Bible knowledge in the world and yet still be vulnerable to the schemes of Satan. To really know how, to build, how, um, to really know, uh, how the belt of truth helps us is to see it as a defense against the schemes of Satan. And so we need to know who the enemy is and what the enemy does. So Satan is called many things in the Bible. He is called the deceiver. He is called the tempter, the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, a murderer and a liar. But one of his main roles is as the accuser. In fact, that's what the word Satan actually means in Hebrew, one who stands against another as an adversary and and accuses them. Satan stands before God and he stands against God's people to accuse them before God of their sin. So in Revelation 12, uh, we read, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is the accuser. He is like a a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom. And this sheds light on why putting on the belt of truth is so important. If Satan is the accuser, then we have to silence silence him. So how does the belt of truth silence the accuser? That's the question we've got to ask right now. That's the question we're asking. How does the belt of truth silence the accuser? Well, Satan's purpose in accusing us before God is to discourage us in our faith. He wants you and I to to be convinced that God does not love us that he never did love us, and, and, that, and that he never will love us. He wants us to think that God is growing tired of us, that his patience with us is growing thin. And he, he, he wants us to believe that God, is, that God generally regrets ever saving someone as useless as us. He wants us to believe that we are, that we are special, but in a bad way, that our sins are far worse than everybody else's. And so how could God really ever love us? That's Satan's purpose. He can't persuade God to stop loving us, but he can convince us that we're unlovable and that we've gone too far. And the Bible tells us that he stands before God day and night, accusing us of our sin before God. And somehow in all of that, we pick up on the accusations. Tim Keller uh, says it's like a trial in the courtroom is being, the trial in the courtroom is being broadcast and we're picking up 
uh, sorry, our conscience is picking up the signal and playing it live in our minds 24-7. There's a courtroom, and in this courtroom, God is a judge. The devil is the prosecuting attorney, and we're in the orange jumpsuit on trial. And Satan shows the judge our sins and our failures, and he uses them to build a case against us. And these memories of past sins flash in front of our mind's eye. And they are as as vivid as if they happened yesterday. And Satan is saying, look at what they've done. They're a mess. Look at what you've done. You're a mess. Why would God ever love someone like you? And this is what is underneath our insecurities, our feelings of inadequacy, our feelings that we're not good enough. And modern psychology will say uh, this is the realm of self-esteem, and that's a start, but it doesn't go deep enough. Now, just in case you're wondering, I am not at all advocating that we don't see counsellors and psychologists when we need to. We absolutely do. I see a counsellor on a regular basis, so I'm not saying that. But we've got to understand what Paul has already said to us in verse 12, which is that we're we're, we're not just wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling with something far deeper, something far more sinister. And what the devil is doing is he's going to our past. He's going to these memories in our past. And he's churning up these things that that cause us shame. And sometimes these memories are things that we've done recently. Sometimes these memories are things that we've done a long time ago. Sometimes these memories are things that we've witnessed. Sometimes these memories are things that have been done to us. And he's churning them up like digging sand underwater. And he's stirring up our guilt and shame. And this is what generates our feelings, those feelings of not being good enough. You see, these accusations, they reinvigorate our shame. And shame is something that we have been dealing with, that man, that's been part of the human condition, right from when sin first entered the world. If you go back to the very first time the word shame was ever used in the Bible, it's in Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were naked and they were not ashamed. Now, far more than their nakedness saying something sexual, it tells us that neither of them had anything to hide. There was no shame because there was nothing to cover up. The concept of shame didn't exist. They had no need to cover up. They had no need to hide. They had no need to cover up their vulnerabilities because there was no sin. And then in Genesis 3, they disobeyed God and they immediately tried to cover themselves up. Why? Because shame had entered and they hid from God. And when God asked them why they were hiding, the man said, I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. You see, sin separates us from God, not just because God is holy, but also because of our shame. And the schemes of the devil are the same as they've always been. been. He leans in on those sins. He leans in on that, on that past. They are the key piece of evidence against us. And he wants us to be trapped by our shame. He wants us to feel that we must hide from God because of our shame. Satan says, you are guilty. God will never love you. He will never accept you because you're a sinner. Look at what you've done. Look at how far you've gone. Look at who you are. How could God ever love someone like you? Sure, he loves the person next to you. That's easily understandable. But you, you've gone way too far. God could never love someone as messed up as you. And what he's doing is he's loading up the guilt. He's loading up the shame. And just so we know, those are two different things, right? You see, guilt says, I've messed up. Shame says, I'm messed up. Guilt says, 
I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. And, this, and Satan wants us to remind us not just that we've sinned, but that we are defined by our sin. He wants us to believe, sorry, that we are defined by our sin. If I can give you a personal example of this. About a year ago, I was going through a pretty dark period in my life. As dark as it's, as it's been for me so far. And uh, I was seeing my counsellor, a wonderful Christian man, and he suggested to me that when I started to feel anxious, that I should pay attention to the inner monologue that's going on inside of my mind. And at first, I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't even think that I had one of those things. I just was like, okay, sure, I'll pay attention to that. And a few weeks passed and nothing really. And then on this one particular day, I started feeling anxious. And I, it was triggered by something that I had done that couldn't be fixed. I had tried to fix something in our house and I'd only made it worse. And at that moment, I started to hear a voice. It was the voice of the accuser. I was picking up on the accuser's case against me. What I heard was, of course you screw this up. You screw everything up. You're a screw up. And it was as clear as that. I started to think, okay, I think that's what my counselor has been talking about. Okay. And I realized that I'd been listening to that voice for a very long time. And underneath, underneath a lot of my anxiety, underneath a lot of my stress, was this horrible voice that just kept accusing me of messing up my life beyond repair. The devil is cunning and ruthless, and there is no mercy in him. Now, sometimes the accusations are about things that we've done. And that might be things that we definitely have done. Sometimes the accusations are about things that um, have been done to us, things that we've witnessed. But these memories of these things suddenly flash in our mind and, and they come into our minds like a torrent. And these memories are always incredibly vivid. They are often blown way out of proportion and we become convinced that if anybody finds that out about us, they'll reject us forever. And here's the thing, if we listen to the accuser's case against us, we'll start to believe it. We'll start to believe that God could never love us. Have you ever felt that before? Have you had an experience of this before? Can you see, can you see how close the schemes of the devil are? Like when we talk about spiritual attack, we're talking about more than just not getting a car park. We're talking about more than just getting every single red light on the way to work. We're talking about something that is sinister, schemed, deadly. So what are we to do? What is our defense? Well, some people might attempt to ignore the accusations of Satan. Uh, they might try and dull them with alcohol or work or shopping or entertainment. We might pacify ourselves by pretending that we feel shame for, that what we feel shame for wasn't actually that bad, or actually lots of people go through it, so it isn't actually that bad. Maybe we'll take our culture's remedy and we'll try and accept ourselves and live our truth. Some people might suggest that our best, our best defense against the accuser is to think on all the good that we've done and that will outshine all the bad. But friends, these are vine leaves. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did when they were confronted with their shame? They dressed themselves. They tried to cover up their nakedness 
with vine leaves and, and hide. That wasn't enough to cover their shame. And so God covered their shame for them. In one of the earliest hints of the gospel in the Bible, we're told in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. He covered their nakedness. He covered their shame. Now, how do you get skin without death? You see, we're dealing with guilt and shame in front of an infinitely holy God. We need much more than vine leaves to make us righteous. We need someone to take our death. It's the only way that we can actually have our shame covered. And it's this death in the garden that points us to the death of Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place. Through Jesus' death, our guilt is lifted from us and our shame is covered. And let me just say that again, in case you were thinking about what you're going to have for lunch later on. Through Jesus' death, our guilt is lifted and our shame is covered. And just in case you're wondering, there is nothing on earth that can do that other than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no amount of alcohol that can cover your shame. There's no amount of stuff that you can buy to make you feel good enough that your guilt is finally lifted from you. There's no house big enough that will make you feel better about your life like in, in such a way that it actually covers our shame. The blood of Jesus Christ is our only hope for our guilt to be lifted and our shame to be covered. Nothing. Nothing. And if you're here and you're, a, you're not a Christian, you're like, I'm not too sure. Listen to me. Nothing. I'm not going to try and back that up with some kind of clever argument. I'm just, making it, I'm just stating it as a fact. Nothing will cover your guilt and shame except for the blood of Jesus Christ, except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' death, our guilt is lifted from us and our shame is covered. Our identity is no longer dictated by what we've done or by what we continue to do, but what Christ has done for us. And it's only here in the gospel that we, have any, we find any hope, any way to defend against the accuser. You see, to put on the belt of truth is to go to the truth of the doctrines of God's word and see that at the centre of the truth, at the centre of all of them, is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He's our advocate. Our defence against the accuser is Jesus Christ who advocates for us on our behalf. Now, I'm hugely indebted to Tim Keller for helping me understand the role of Jesus Christ as, the, uh, uh, as our advocate in the courtroom, and especially, and especially against the one who is against us. The Apostle John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Paul says in Romans 8, Who is to condemn? Christ, Jesus, is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. This is what it means to be strengthened by the strength of the Lord. Understanding that the power of God was what raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And if you read the tail end of Ephesians 1 and the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, you'll see that those three words, this power of the strength of his might, are used to, to describe 
uh, God raising Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. The armor of God is there for us to understand that we've got an advocate by the, who's at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus right now? He's in the courtroom, at the right-hand side of the judge. And while there is an accuser who points to our flaws, there is also an advocate, Jesus Christ. And because of his great love for us, he died for our sins, he took our place on a cross. And that there is the truth of truths. That is, a, that is the belt of truth. What we need to remember is the truth of truths that Jesus Christ took our shame. And every time the accuser brings up our sin, Jesus Christ the righteous is there saying, yeah, he sinned, but I've already paid for that. There's the accuser and there's the advocate. And we've got to tune out what the accuser is saying about us and we've got to tune in to what the advocate is saying about himself. Not what the advocate is saying about us. What the advocate is saying about himself. You see, when Jesus Christ comes to our defence, he doesn't come to, to God the judge talking about us and saying, come on God, it wasn't that bad. Can't we just sweep that under the rug? Can't we just pretend it never happened? Heaps of people struggle with that type of sin. Heaps of people struggle with this. What's so bad about that sin? He doesn't say, come on God, she's not a bad person. Look at how hard she tried. Look at all the good she, that she does in the community. Look at how much she sacrificed. Can't you see that, God? When Jesus advocates for us at the right hand of God, he doesn't do so by trying to minimize sin or by trying to make us look better than we actually are. He advocates for us on the basis of what he has done to absorb the just wrath of God. He advocates to God on the basis of justice. He doesn't come to God saying, come on, God, give him a fair go. He comes to God saying, no, God, your law is just. What he did, what she did, deserves death. That is absolutely true. And look, Jesus, I have died for them. I have died for him. I have died for her. Their sin has been paid for already. He doesn't come in talking about us. He comes in talking about himself, showing God the blood of his own blood. Can you see how practical the gospel is? It's not just high-end, polluting doctrine. It's not just theory. It's here and now, and we've got to wear it daily as a belt. It means that when the devil comes to us and accuses us of our sin, and maybe that's coming through in vivid memories, but whatever it is, whenever we're feeling discouraged, whenever we're feeling doubt, whenever we're feeling that God could never love us, we've got to say this, hey devil, you know what, you're right, I am a sinner. In fact, you don't know half of the devil. You're not, you're not omniscient, so you don't know half of my sin. You can only see the stuff that I've done. And yes, I deserve to be on trial, but actually I'm not. I'm not the one on trial right now. Jesus took my place. Jesus substituted himself for me. Devil, your enemy took my place and he took my penalty. My debt has already been paid and it can't be paid again. And more than that, I'm not just out of the red, I'm well and truly into the black. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited, credited to my account. So Satan, there is nothing that you can say against me that can stick because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Fastening on the belt of truth is remembering the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ. It's remembering the gospel and wrapping that tightly around us, tightening it to protect us from the accuser. It's looking at the central truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and being assured of our salvation because of the gospel. It's a confidence in our salvation because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross.
Now, before I finish up, I just want to say there's one thing about past sins and confession. When we're called to confess our sins, does that mean to God or to others, like brothers and sisters in the faith? Well, we must definitely confess our sins to God. Confession and repentance is our only hope for actually being saved. Confession, coming to God and, and confessing our sins before men, repenting of their sins. And there is so much liberty to be found in confessing our sins to our brothers and sisters in Christ. James writes, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, if there's something in your life that you can't talk about, that thing has power over you. And the only thing that should have power over you is our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And the power that guilt and shame wields against us can be arrested and destroyed as we, by Jesus, as we confess our sins to one another. Now, I know that's scary. I know that's a big risk for some of us. There's a lot of trust involved in that. That's really terrifying for some of us as we consider what it might be that we have to actually confess. But there is more freedom in this than you could ever know. Confessing our sin and repenting of it and sitting with a brother or a sister in faith and doing that. This is why I'm hugely passionate about Sundays. That's why I'm big on coming to church. That's why I'm big on making Sundays a high priority on your list. Not just because we want to get bums on seats. You've got to understand that. For, I know for myself and for Kyle, we don't give a stuff about that. But if you're here and you're in regular fellowship with other brothers and sisters and you see them throughout the week at Life Group and you're praying for one another and you're texting one another and you're building relationships, you're building rapport, and you're building that trust, you're going to find that there's going to come a time where you can actually start talking to your brothers and sisters in faith about this stuff. And you need to. You really, really need to. And then this is why we come together on Sundays. Not just because this is you know, a show. That's not it. We come because when we're in one another's lives, we look across the aisle and we can see Jake or Penny or Reuben or Dale. Or Just in case your name is Jake or Penny and Reuben and Dale, I'm not pointing you out. But I go to life group with Jake and Penny... And I know what's going on in their lives. I know the struggles that they've been in for years and years, and they're desperately trying to seek an answer from God on this. And then I look across them during Sunday worship, and they're here on time. They come to church because they want to worship God. And I look over them, and they've ra- they're raising their hands, and their eyes are closed. And I go, man, that is such an encouragement to me. If they can praise God after everything that they've been through, that makes me want to praise God all the more. That makes me want to lift up God all the more. You see, when we come to, together to church on Sundays, it's not so you can come and go, oh, the preaching was all right, and my kids got taken care of all that stuff. It's to actually edify and encourage one another through God's Word and through worship of Him. When we sing these songs, we're not just singing these songs to God, we're singing these songs about God to one another. So you should lift your voice high. You should be loud as you sing. Don't be ashamed of what your voice sounds like. Try and make it that everybody in the room can hear your voice. Because you might just be edifying and encouraging your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what worship is all about.
back to the, as I finish up. When we're feeling inadequate and insecure, when we have that feeling that we're not good enough, we need to remember the truth of God's word. So let me point to you, point you to a number of things, a number of just great truths of God's word that can just help us in those times. When we're reminded of our sin, the truth of God's word says in Hebrews 8.12, if you're taking notes, write that down. That might be important to you this week. The truth of God's word says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's the truth of God's word. When we feel unrighteous, we can let the truth of God's word remind us that God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. When we're feeling those deep feelings of shame, we can go to the truth of God's word that tells us everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. When we think that God is growing tired of us, we remember the truth of God's word that tells us that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with our Lord Jesus, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. When we feel isolated and alone as if, and as if no one could ever understand us or help us, we can go to the truth of God's word, which tells us that by our faith, we've been joined to the body of Christ and we are members of it. And when one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoiced together. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. Finally, when we begin to believe that our sin defines us, we can go to the truth of God's word, which tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So here's the message of reconciliation. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He made us righteous so that we can be reconciled to God our Father and know the truth of who we actually are because we are in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what is true of him becomes true of us. And that is wonderful news. That is wonderful news. When the accuser comes and reminds us of our sin, may we put on the belt of truth and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 